Uh, it is uh, my, my typical feeling about preaching at chapel is, is just great honor and then uh, great trepidation. So it's always um, a fearful and wonderful thing to, to step into the pulpit here, um, just knowing uh, how God has charged up my heart to view all of you. Um, and so, yeah, just really honored to be here. Uh, pray with me. Lord, you are good and you do good. And so we ask that you would grant us ears to hear this morning. We've, we've gathered here uh, to hear from you. And we're um, coming to your table as your children asking for a theological meal uh, for our souls, um, that our stomachs might be filled with what even Dr. Allen just read, that we, we don't want to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we, we trust you. We want to give ourselves over to you. I pray that this would be a useful time for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Perpetua was a Christian woman who lived at the turn of the third century in modern-day Tunisia. This is the African, North, northern African region. City of Carthage is where she lived. The emperor, you've heard much of this, I'm sure, um, j just by the fact that you're in this room. But at this point in time, it's a difficult era for the Christian church, right? But the emperor had placed followers of Jesus um, in his crosshairs. The Christian church is put on notice in many places. Um, and he had his mind set on torturous ends. And he accomplished that largely. So Perpetua is caught up in these persecutions. Um, she's eventually and unsurprisingly imprisoned. Uh, on account of her Christianity, and, and, and in the scenes that I'm about to quote from, um, is either during or when she's awaiting trial, right? And then eventually her trial. So her father, who is an unbeliever, he's a pagan, he begged her to recant her faith in Christ, but she would not do it. Um, she, she said, can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian? While in prison, Perpetua was allowed to nurse her infant child. She had an infant child at the time. Her father would visit her, um, having some degree of care for the child. He would visit her in the prison. This is what he said. He said, have pity on my gray head. Remember, he's, he's an unbeliever. Have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father, if I deserve to be called your father. If I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life, do not abandon me to be the reproach of men. Think of your brothers, think of your mother and your aunt, think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. You imagine it. Perpetua is shaken, but she does not falter. She responded, it will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. When the time came for her trial, Perpetua was uh, brought before the governor with some other Christians that accompanied her. She refused to make, uh, the, where the issue was pressed, she refused to make a sacrifice to the emperor. Um, this would have been obviously an, an act of emperor worship. So during the trial, her father uh, brings in her infant uh, child into the courtroom, and he cries out to her, perform the sacrifice, have pity on your baby. The governor doubles down, he intensifies, have pity on your father's gray head, have pity on your infant son, offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. Perpetual replied simply, I will not. Then came her final resolve, her confession. The question, are, are you a Christian then? 
Her response, yes, I am. The governor delivered Perpetua over to certain death in the arena, the gladiatorial arena. She and those with her were thrown into the stadium with both Beast and eventually uh, Gladiator. The crowd, we would understand it spiritually, demonically um, whipped up. They're roaring, demanding bloodshed. For an extended, excruciating time, she, she's maimed. She is savaged by wild animals. Um, this demonic mob, no longer satisfied with blood, now chants for her death. And after enduring this extended period of, of agonizing suffering, Perpetual was in the end slain by sword. What would possess the mother of a nursing infant to deliberately and willfully enter the gladiator's arena to endure a sure and gruesome death. What could cause or compel a young Christian woman to do such a thing? Only a mother, only a young woman who had taken hold of a more unshakable life, an indestructible life could do that, could do such a thing. Only a mother who grasped the greater realities that lay beyond the perimeter of this life could do such a thing. So Perpetua had taken a hold, as you know, to, of an unshakable king, of an unshakable kingdom. She had been granted an, an irrevocable citizenship. And that's how she lived her life. And that's how she lived her death. Turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15 is going to be our focus. We're going to look a little bit at chapter 7, but mostly at Stephen's trial. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And I'll signal to you as we continue reading. We'll go on into chapter 7 a bit, but I'll, I'll signal that. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes. So they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. So the next level up. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stops speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Are these things true? The high priest said, Acts chapter 7, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, he replied, listen. Stephen, from here, he preaches a sermon. Um, you could maybe you could get your mind around what this sermon was like if, if I gave you a bit of an analogy. We won't read through it. 
Um, imagine you find yourself preaching a sermon in the worship house of a uh, so-called Mormon church, and you're going to preach a Christian sermon. You just find yourself there somehow. Uh, you preach a Christian sermon so effective, so convicting, that at the end of it, they rush the podium and drag you outside and strangle you. That, that is the sermon that he preaches. It's, it's an expository sermon on the entire Old Testament, and it's so effective, so convicting, that they rush him at the end and, and kill him, right? Turn to the end of the chapter, um, chapter 7, verse 54, and we'll read the end of, of his life and, and his episode in the book of Acts. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Now, I've not come uh, aimlessly this morning. I, I am burdened. Could probably sense it already, but I, I'm burdened to sound the alarm for you and ready and steady you for a coming cultural onslaught that's already here in many ways. Um, but we are in and headed further into choppy cultural waters. This isn't a surprise to you. I'm not prophesying anything. Um, just look at the times, look where we are. And I think a story like uh, Stephen is good to stare at. What's amazing and what might surprise you is if you take the scope of Scripture is that we'll see that the sinful, weak us, you and me, we're, we're not perfect at this, but what Scripture teaches is that because we are indwelled with the Spirit, us old Christians, if push came to shove, most of us, most, would not recant Christ, but we would die before we would do that. And I don't think we typically, as an American church, maybe it's a cheap shot, but probably a weak American church, we don't typically look at stuff like this very much. So I, I'm burdened with that. And I'm praying that God would, would build out in you the emotional, the spiritual fortitude needed to brave these choppy cultural waters that, that, are, that we're in and that are coming at us. Because my suspicion is a lot of us are losing the small battles the day-in, day-out battles, the moment-by-moment -moment battles, and, and that's what actually readies us for the bigger issues of losing your job or not losing face whenever you're challenged by your mom about your Christian faith or whatever may come, right? And so that's my, my burden, and it's that you would recognize you, you are a citizen of an unshakable kingdom, and I want you to act like it. I want you to live like it. The transcendent implication, the meaning of this text uh, is really, it, it could be summed up like this. Although persecution for following Jesus is inevitable, it is also a sure sign of our citizenship in Christ's kingdom. Therefore, disciples must look to a future reward. 
Let me read it again. Although persecution for following Jesus is inevitable, it is also a sure sign of our citizenship in Christ's kingdom. Therefore, disciples must look to our future reward. Some of you don't like long main points, so I've got a shorter one for you. Martyrdom is the Christian's one superpower. Martyrdom is the Christian's one superpower. Our time uh, will be framed out by five different scenes that will carry us through the passage that we read, and then we'll culminate with a few takeaways. So scene one, an angelic man. Scene one, an angelic man. This is in verse eight. Acts describes, Luke describes Stephen in 6, 8 as having heavenly and almost angelic qualities to him. Uh, they're just about him. It's his aura, right? Um, Luke casts Stephen, not surprisingly, what he, he's doing this intentionally, as this Moses-like figure in the global drama of God's story in Scripture. So his face is shining. It, it shines just like the break of dawn. And, and, and in verse 15, it says much the same, right? He, he's got this angelicness to him, um, and we're supposed to pick on that. So what is this? Is this just like hyperbole? Um, I don't think so. Stephen had made a steady practice of giving his life away in absolute servitude, and he is radiating with Christ. And, and these people cannot stand it because it's confronting their sin. It's confronting their false vision of who God is. So he is this other world-class deacon, as we read earlier in Acts, and he's full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Acts 6, verse 5. So he performs these great wonders and these signs just like Moses, and right out of the gate, each one of us should be confronted immediately with um, a good and haunting question. What is the difference between Stephen and me? Why is it exactly that till now no one's tried to kill me for how godly I am? That's what the text should confront you with. Stephen Lawson, a preacher not unknown to, to many in this room, he, he once said, the problem with preachers these days is no one wants to kill them anymore. He's right. To the opposite there's a modern, I'll not name him, English uh, Bible scholar who said, why is it that everywhere Paul went, he caused a riot, and everywhere I go, they serve tea? Where is the fear of God in that statement? That is a haunting comment. I would not be able to sleep at night. What sin in your life is keeping you from living a more godly life like Stephen? Where, where your life is confronting people, would you pray? I mean, even now as I'm preaching, would you pray that God would expose it to you, would uproot it? What kind of sin are you holding on to that doesn't allow you to be this angelic type person, that people are confronted by your godliness? I, th I think it, it just pushes us towards living a life of eternal significance, um, that's what I'm meaning. That's what I think the, the text means by this angelic kind of man. He lived this otherworldly kind of life in this world, and he was on the brink of resurrection life, though he wasn't dead yet, right? That's the life he lived. So he's full of grace because he's a man grounded and in step with God, and he's a student of the word, and it puts him 
in, in diametric oppositions with the powers and principalities of this world. And that's the life and death that, that he lived. In scene one, look at scene two, and we'll call that an argument. An angelic man, an argument. This is verses nine and 10. Um, when you're looking at this, these verses here, it's not, I hope you see yourself and your own sin even in uh, these men who eventually kill Stephen, because you don't really take kindly to it when, when folk attack your power base either, right? So in their sin, the, these Jewish and Greek Old Covenant adherents at these particular synagogues that, that Stephen bumbles into here by divine providence, they're, they're not taking kindly to Stephen trespassing on their turf, their power base. So Stephen gets the same response that Jesus does. It's not surprising. He gets the same response. And, and I think it's instructive for me and you that if you're going to ride shotgun with Jesus, then you shouldn't be surprised when you're on the stagecoach that, that bullets start coming at you. That's how it works. So you need to settle that in your heart and your mind and go ahead and accept that or, or, or bail on Jesus. Those are the only options. And that's going to be in your heart and your mind where people don't really see it, but only the Lord's there. It's going to happen in conversations. It may happen in your family. It may happen in loss of job. But, but you've got to accept that. You've got to own that, that in God's divine providence, he, he's sending those things. So on this day with Stephen, these, these bullets, so to speak, of persecution are whizzing by him. But then on this day, they're going to hit him square. And, and that, that is in God's plan the brave and, and heartening news that comes with the Christian truths of, of resurrection that you and I own is that this isn't the curtain call for Stephen, is it? This is in many ways just the beginning. But rather um, than going down to dust and, and remaining there, he's going to rise to indestructible life, just like Jesus on the third day. And you see the great secret your sin and, and Satan are trying to keep from you, and this passage tells us, this exposes the secret, is that the person willing to be killed for Christ is invincible. That's the secret. You're invincible. You are not beholden to people's opinions of you. You are beholden to your king. And that's what gives you strength to live out the conversations, to kill your sin, to deal with difficult family, to lose a job, to lose social face, whatever it may be. It's kind of like we're told in the great hall of faith, right? This passage in Hebrews, the, the author of Hebrews, what, is, what does he help us with? He tells us, and what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith, just like Stephen, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. 
They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith. They did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. Note at the end of verse 9 and most of verse 10, these opposers couldn't withstand the strength of Stephen's argumentation. The weight of the gospel logic that he brings, they, they buckled under it, right? Why? Because he's filled with faith. He's filled with the power of the living God. It's, it's eerie for you and I to consider as we consider our own sin and, and the, the gap between us and, and Stephen, but the same God who powerfully created these opposers, verse 9. So God is sustaining them. Uh, he's, he's created them. The same God, same power who's sustaining their heartbeat at this very moment. He, he is using Stephen to overpower them. A true and faithful reader of the Old Testament uh, they are not, right? But, but he is. He's sustaining both lives at the moment, but he's using Stephen to overpower them. And this is, uh, the instruction comes with where your sin will take you. They're both sustained, Stephen and his opposers, by God. One is glorifying God. One is, is going headlong into their sin. Same moment, same event. And, and I think what we need to recognize, even maybe from the panel yesterday, right, is that when you're dabbling with sin, the direction that that's going to take you, the dregs of that sinful cup is, is looking like these guys, opposing God. So you could think of Stephen's episode in Acts kind of like the anti-Acts 2 sermon, right? Acts 2, what, what happens there, the peoples from all over the globe, every corner, they're streaming in to hear the gospel. They're being converted, this sort of thing. In Acts 6, there's a lot of different um, regions represented, right? It's like this opposition. It's, it's the opposing story. They're coming from all over the globe as well, but to, it's to oppose God. And, and we can see wherever we find the, find the authentic, the fraudulent is going to rise up to challenge it, right? It's the Acts, anti-Acts 2 sermon. Um, Stephen's lot, though, is yours too, right? You'll find yourself in arguments for the truth and health of your neighbor's soul, your father's soul, your mother's soul, who, who, whoever is opposing your Christian witness, your neighbor, and they will argue against you, and they'll argue against your measures of holiness, the truth. You can mark it. You're going to be just like Stephen, and you've already experienced that, I trust. End of scene two, scene three, a false accusation, a false accusation. This is verses 11 through 14. These leaders, twistedly and craftily, like Satan, persuade one set of rabble to say this. This is verse 11. We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. That's verse 11. And then they convince another set of riffraff to say, this man never stops speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Verses 13 to 14. Um, you have Stephen over here. Just get the scene. You have Stephen over here performing otherworldly wonders looking like literally an angel. And then these other guys are using nothing but their worldly powers to oppose him. 
they're holding on to something. And it's the same things that Satan holds on to. Who's breaking the commandments now, right? They're lying. That, that's the point. Stephen shows us that he is the master interpreter of scripture, just like his master, King Jesus. If you think the way that you read the Bible, maybe even specifically the Old Testament, doesn't matter, Stephen was willing to die for his interpretation of the Old Testament. What about you? Maybe you can get up before class and read your Bible. Um, Jesus, of course, as you know, that it, the story exposes that it's the opposite is true, right? Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the true Moses. Uh, Stephen wasn't blaspheming God. His life is uh, in the Romans 12, one sense, a living sacrifice. So he's falsely accused. And again, we should not be surprised when it happens to us. You're going to confront people in their worldview, and they will not like it. And they'll try to get rid of you on small levels by blocking you or something like that on social media. I'm going to have a word to say about that just in a moment. Um, but they're going to try to get rid of you. It's going to be on higher levels. Maybe that's removing you from their social circle all the way up to where Stephen is, where we're talking about death. In scene three, scene four, an angelic face, verse 15, an angelic face, verse 15. Um, verse 15 says, and all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. For these opposers, Stephen's life was like running into a steel wall. He is built of different stuff than them. He cares about things that they don't care about. They care greatly about things that mean nothing to him. And so it's like running into a steel wall. The only way in the biblical logic someone can be this kind of a person, meaning Stephen, is if they're filled with the Spirit of God. He has spent maximal amounts with God, and therefore he is maximally godly. That's the idea. In turn, I, I think... Stephen also, it should be pointed out that this is a great example of lacking fear of man. He, he does not uh, allow people's view of him to affect him on whether he's willing to even give up his life for what he believes in. Right? So fear of man has to be vanquished if that's going to actually live in you. You have to fear God, not man, if you're going to live like Stephen, as Stephen lives like Jesus, Right? then he is capable, because he doesn't fear man, he's capable to love people truly. In this case, very confrontationally. But, but if you want to be free to truly love people, to care for them, to, to bring them love, like in the way that the Bible talks about it, you have to be free from trying to use them. You need to be quick to use your money, your time, your passions, your giftings to care for them. And you cannot extend the right to define who you are to them. That's where love shows up. And, and you'll all of a sudden find that you don't use people anymore to step on their head to get where you want to go, but you actually are truly loving them. And in Stephen's case, in this story, it's, it's confrontational. But in a lot of cases in your life, it's, it's going to be just showing up with lo just loving people, caring for them, because you don't fear man. 
God had, it seems, before this day in Stephen's life, uh, one by one by one by one, stripped Stephen of his creature comforts, as they're called. The desires for power and prestige and pities seem to not be the thing that, that he's after, but rather honoring God, glorifying God. He, he was spiritually fit, you could say. He was ready for this. And Stephen wanted nothing more than to honor and worship God. And on this day, that desire cost him his earthly life. But what he gained, of course, is a heavenly life, an angelic face even. So don't crave the um, worldly features that are just shining and, and being pushed in your face all day long. What you want to crave what you want to desire is the stability, the kind of life that Stephen has here. He, he shows us wholeness in a way that, that we often don't encounter, right? He's just going for broke, and we're watching him do it, and, and we're supposed to be confronted by our gap and the way that we currently operate. Whatever health concerns, whatever loss, whatever attack may be on you, whatever persecution, the, the way through those things is to trust in Christ, to beg God to eliminate fear of man in you, to begin, begin loving people truly, and it may show up in this confrontational way, like with Stephen, but either way, you've got to posture yourself in a capable way to love them, care for them, serve them. And if it costs you your life, then so be it. You'd be ready for that. But most of it is about just living everyday life, whether you're canceled or not, whether you're opposed or not. Here's your four takeaways. It's the end of the fourth scene. Here, here's your four takeaways. Kill fear of man before it kills you. Kill fear of man before it kills you. What Stephen holds out for all of us today is a different life. I, I, want, I want you to want to live a life that matters. Do you want to make or excuse me, do you want to live a life that counts for something more than just endless scrolling, right? We've all been there. Just endless scrolling on the internet, on social media. Live a life just for Instagram likes and cultural projections. The safety of your 401k. Do you want to live a life that, that's, that's above that? Long weekends, early retirement, a picture-perfect vacation. Is that like what you want your life to be about? He's holding out a different option for us. Look at the two types of people here in this story. On one hand, you have the Sanhedrin who are scratching, scraping, snarling, killing to hold on to this puny little world that they cannot hold on to. And then you have Stephen who is completely different than that, right? Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 60, it says, he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I mean, he's praying for his murderers. This is crazy. What kind of self-control does this guy have? What lack of fear of man? How much has he given over to the Lord that the Lord defines who he is, that this is where he's at? He had killed fear of man. Don't you want to have the same kind of confidence that Stephen has in God, that God has got it, that even if I'm being pelted by stones, I am not concerned. Beg God for it. 
If you're going to follow Stephen as he follows Jesus, you've got to have a divorce with the world. You've got to get a divorce with the fear of man. So put a hit list on it in your own life, journal about it, do whatever you need to do, but you need to start killing fear of man. Second one, second takeaway is we are the new Amish. We are the new Amish. And I don't mean actually, and I definitely don't mean theologically, but I do mean if in our culture you're going to live loud and proud, as a Christian, you're going to be looked upon as quaint at best and as a sexual bigot at worst. That's where the fires and, and the confrontation is, is on the sexual front in our culture. No, no surprise there. Our sexual ethic as Christians is the unpardonable cultural sin. You can't get away from it. Because you hold to, and you must, because you hold to premarital sex is sin. The LGBTQ plus polemic is false. Divorce is not neutral. Just those three alone. If you hold to those, you, you, you're Amish. <laughs> like you're crazy. That, that is insane. Our cultural lives are in diametric opposition to these things. And so go ahead and just own it. You're, you're riding down Highway 13 towards Springfield, looking at the little, black little carriage as they cloppity clop, clop, clop. That's the homage. That's who you are. And so just go ahead and own that. If you lose your job, so be it. You are going to be resurrected. If it causes you difficulty with a friend or a family member, I pray that you have the patience that Stephen has. But you can't give it up. You, you, Jesus is your Lord, not them, right? Third one, martyrdom is the Christian's superpower. Martyrdom is the Christian's superpower. I, I have just a brief personal word for fusion. Um, this sermon... And this text is not your ticket to acting a fool overseas, okay? Um, I, there's a reason I'm preaching it in this semester and not next semester. You need to follow your IMB orders. You need to understand the chain of command. You need to talk to Eric if you have some questions. Um, but it, it still stands. Martyrdom is the Christian superpower. You, you'd think, though, for us that, by the way, most of us live that being nice and liked on social media is our superpower. It's not. The cultural tide, tide coming at us, the, the Amish comment above, that, that's what is showing us that. God is kind to rip the veneer off of us that martyrdom has always been our great superpower. And that's in the day-in, day-out way, but maybe even in the ultimate way, right? So do you die to self daily in your heart, in your mind, in the secrecy of who you are when no one is praising you? Are you willing and convicted to die to self? Well, if so, then it's going to start playing out in the more public settings, right? Are you ready to lose everything you've built in an instant for Christ? That's the question that Stephen gives us. If you're put in front of the jury, as the old adage says, would you be convicted of being um, selfless, a servant, with your time, with your money, with your passions? Fourth one, self-control is our era's great need. Self-control is our era's great need. Um, to be the kind of Christian Stephen was, it doesn't happen overnight. 
He's been dying to sell thousands and thousands of thousands of tiny little deaths all the way up to this point where he shows up in scripture specifically. We know that he's a world-class deacon, right? He's known for his godliness, his faithfulness, but all of those small exercises of self-control mount up to this moment where he exercises the ultimate amount of self-control. He does not deny Christ. And instead, his life becomes this catalyst to launch the Great Commission to planting churches off into the atmosphere to the point that 2,000 years later, we're still reading it. So self-control is... uh, what he uses day in and day out and in this ultimate sense. And my question to you is, what can it do for you? It sounds almost silly, but like this, it's just ringing in my ears all the way through this story. Is like, he can't do this without just mass amounts of self-control all the way leading up to this point. Well, there's one more scene, right? And in, in conclusion, the fifth scene is angelic adoration above angelic adoration above. This is verse 15, but then also the latter part of chapter 7. Perpetua and Stephen's earthly story ends at the point of their martyrdom. Earthly story. But of course, it's just beginning, isn't it? When Stephen and Perpetua blinked into their heavenly self with their Lord, they had obtained an indestructible life. They did so by faith. They walked by faith. And this is signaled in, in Acts, uh, at the end of Acts 7, uh, verse 55 and 56, it, it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, all of the pain, all of the self-denial, all the exercising of self-control, all the suffering, it's worth it. He is a picture of what every single one of us will experience. You endure, you will behold the Son of God. It will be worth it. I don't know, I do not know what the cost will be for me and you. We know there's suffering. I don't know if it will land somewhere in the Stephen zone or it's just constant berating, by family. I don't know. But either way, you've got to settle it now that you're willing to say, okay, it's martyrdom of my personal self, of my family self, of of, of maybe my literal life, but I'm, I'm in. And if you do that, you become invincible. Let me pray. Lord, you're good. And so we ask that you would grant us self-control. We ask that you would grant us an understanding of our weakness and our status in our culture, that we would be relieved of delusions, that we would be able to live truly for you. We ask that you would kill and grant us the the ability to kill fear of man. In Jesus' name, amen.